This evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Ezra. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Ezra chapter 8. As you make your way to the 8th chapter of Ezra, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that the author of this book was a priest named Ezra. And Ezra was a teacher who was well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord God had given to Israel. And not only was Ezra a well-versed teacher who was knowledgeable about the law of God, but it was actually in 458 BC when he led a group of Israelites from Babylon to Jerusalem. And as we consider the way that this teacher of the law led this people from the land of their captivity to the land of promise, well, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that Ezra came to be known as the second Moses. Well, with all this in mind, we're going to spend our time tonight considering Ezra's account of his journey to Jerusalem. And as we make our way through this incredible chapter, we're going to learn about the way that Ezra looked to the Lord who provided him with divine direction so that he could set out to lead this caravan from Babylon to Israel. As we consider his example, it's my hope that we would all realize that our God is able to guide those who will humbly ask him for the help that we need. So with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Ezra's account found here in Ezra chapter 8. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 1. Here Ezra writes, these are the heads of their father's houses and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylon in the reign of King Artaxerxes, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, of the sons of David, Hattush, of the sons of Shechaniah, of the sons of Parash, Zechariah, and registered with him uh, were 150 males, of the sons of Pahath, Moab, Eliahoniah, the son of Zeraiah, and with him 200 males, of the sons of Shechaniah, Ben-Jahaziel, and with him 300 males, of the sons of Adon, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 males, of the sons of Elam, Jeshaiah, uh, the son of Athaliah, and with him 70 males, of the sons of Shephatiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and with him 80 males, of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him 218 males, of the sons of Shelomith, Ben-Jehoshaphiah, uh, with him 160 males, of the sons of Bebai, Zechariah, the son of Bebai, and with him 28 males, of the sons of Azagad, Johanan, the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 males, of the, of the last sons of Adonakam, uh, those uh, whose names are these, Eliphilet, Jael, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 males, also the sons of Bigvi, Utai, and Zabud, and with them 70 males. Now, you might want to take some time to check up on my pronunciations there, but let me assure you that I pronounced every single name perfectly. So, so there. But in the beginning of this chapter, we find Ezra's account of the men who journeyed with him to Jerusalem. And while the total number of men here was 1,754, uh, this register doesn't include the women and the children because, you know, patriarchy and all. But if we factor in the wives and the children, then it's not unreasonable for us to conclude that Ezra was leading a group of people that could have been comprised of anywhere between 6,000 and 7,000 people. This was a very large group. And, and that's not even factoring in the personal articles and all the livestock. 
At the same time, I should also point out here that this journey to Jerusalem was over 1,600 miles. And in order to put this trip into perspective, you know, it'll help you to know that a similar distance is found between Austin, Texas and San Francisco. And, and in both places, you'll find similar situations uh, with an app that will help you to navigate the streets. But now imagine traveling in this slow-moving caravan from Austin to San Francisco or a similar distance. No convenience stores along the way. No cops to protect you from highway robbers. I mean, just imagine the, the troubles and the trials of, of taking this group of six, 7,000 people this distance without much protection at all. This trip wasn't going to be a walk in the park. And now imagine being the leader. Imagine being the one that God chose to guide this entire group of people, that you're responsible for all these people and all of this livestock. Think about it. The Lord was calling Ezra to lead more than 6,000 people on a journey that was over 1,600 miles on an unknown path that was filled with all sorts of perilous problems. And as we consider all of this, we can be certain that uh, you know, Ezra was well aware of the fact that he needed assistance. He needed assistance of other believers who could help him to accomplish his calling. With that being the case, we shouldn't be surprised by the challenge that he gave to the Levites who were missing. With this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 8. I'm going to focus your attention beginning at verse 15. Here Ezra writes, Now I gathered them by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there three days, and I looked among the people and the priests and found none of the sons of Levi there. Then I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leaders also for Jorab, and Elnathan, men of understanding. And I gave them a command for Edu, the chief man at the place Kasaphia, and I told them what they should say to Edo and his brethren, the Nethanim, at the place uh, Kasphia, uh, that they should bring us servants for the house of our God. Now, now here in these verses, we find Ezra, he's setting up camp on the outskirts of Babylon. And for three days, they camped at this river that flows to Ahava. And it's there where he had that Ahava moment where he realized that uh, there's no Levites here. Where are the Levites? He realized that this group traveling with him was lacking Levites. And for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to remember that the Levites were the, the descendants of Jacob's son, Levi, you know, the, the guy that invented jeans. And, and, and listen, it, it's important to remember here that the Levites were the Israelites who were called to support the priests. The Nethanim were called to support the Levites. The Levites were called to support the priests, but the Levites and the Nethanim, they're nowhere to be found. They're called to serve the Lord there at the temple, but they're thinking, you know, it's just kind of nice here in Babylon this time of year. You know, rather than making this whole trip back to Jerusalem and, and getting to work there at the temple, why don't we just stay here? Knowing that they were heading to Jerusalem in order to help with the daily sacrifices, you know, Ezra was determined to encourage the Levites that it's time to start serving. It's not time to stay back in Babylon. 
And so he encouraged them to join them on this journey to Jerusalem so that they could all together serve the Lord at the temple. Now, as we consider the way that Ezra challenged the Levites so that they might step up and serve, I have no doubt that there were those who were offended by this convicting command. And in similar fashion, you know, there, there, were, there are many in the church today who take issue with the pastors who dare challenge the church to come out of Babylon so that we can actually spend time serving our Savior here within our fellowship of faith. Sadly, what these easily offended attendees fail to realize is that their issue isn't with their pastor, it's really with the Word of God. As a matter of fact, the New Testament is actually filled with instructions that, every, that, that, that actually... I would say uh, call, but even command every Christian to step up and serve the Lord. For example, in Galatians chapter 5, we find Paul declaring this. He says, do not use liberty, do not, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's right, he's telling the Christians at the church in Galatia that they needed to walk in love so that they can serve one another. From this, we can see that Christians have been called to serve one another within their fellowship of faith. Peter shared the same sentiment in 1 Peter chapter 4. There he declares, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Or in other words, we've been called to use our spiritual gifts to serve one another. You weren't given spiritual gifts for you. You were given spiritual gifts for others. And we're supposed to share those spiritual gifts in the way that we serve. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul encouraged every Christian to, to serve at their church by informing the, us that, 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 that the whole body is joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share and then causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Every part of the body is supposed to do its share. All the members of the body are, are therefore called to do their part so that the, the fellowship of faith works effectively so that you don't have a small number of people doing all of the work while the rest of us you know, sit back in Babylon and, and, and are grateful that we're not having to do anything. It's in John chapter 13 where the Lord Jesus directs his disciples clearly by, by be, uh, telling us to become servants. And, and here's how he put it. You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. From this, uh, there should be no doubt that the Lord Jesus Christ has called every Christian to become servants. And, and, and not just servants, but servants who are willing to accomplish the most menial of tasks. You know, that's what the, the, the foot washing task was all about. This was like the most menial thing that any servant would do. Wash other people's feet. And Jesus is saying, hey, just like I've done it, now I want you to do this to each other. And so let's all kick off our shoes real quick and Listen, with all these verses in mind, I can assure you that, you know, I could actually fill the rest of our time tonight with nothing but Bible verses about serving one another. That's how common this theme in the scriptures actually is. That I could just take the rest of our time tonight just reading verses about the call to serve. With that being the case, it's important to understand that we haven't been called to become church attendees. 
We're called to become servants. And, and the church attendee who's offended by the pastor who calls every Christian to serve, they're not wrestling with me. I'm just the mailman. I'm just dropping off the news. I'm just telling you what the Lord says. If you've got a problem with that, your issue is with the word and the will of God. So take it up with him. Don't send me any, any emails. <laughs> Don't call me and, and, and gripe me out. If you're wrestling with this, go to the word. Take it up with the Lord. And, and, and I'd love to help you to find a place to serve if, if you're looking for my help. The Lord doesn't want you staying behind in Babylon, no matter what the excuse is. And it's my job to simply encourage every Christian to follow the word of God so that you can be in the will of God. That's my role as the pastor. It's my job to encourage every Christian to to join us on this journey as we step up and serve our Savior. Now, with all this in mind, let's consider how how a wise Levite named Sherebiah led his family to join in this journey so that they could go back to Jerusalem and serve. Let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 8. If you would, let's begin reading at verse 18. Here Ezra writes, Then by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and brothers, 18 men, and Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah, the sons of Merari, his brothers and their sons, 20 men, also of the Nethanim, whom David and the leaders had appointed for the service of the Levites, 220 Nethanim, all of them were designated by name. Now here in these verses, we learn about this day when this Levite named Sherebiah, he responded to the challenge of Ezra, and he did so with faithful obedience. He heard the convicting words and stepped up to serve. And not only that, but listen, he influenced his sons and he influenced his brothers to join him. And not only that, but his decision then uh, ended up influencing uh, others within this family line of, of Levi. This included 20 men from the lineage uh, uh, of Levi's son, Merari. And, and not only that, but there were Nethanim who joined them as well. And as we consider Sherebiah's influence over the rest of these men, we must not fail to notice the way that Ezra described him there in verse 18. There we learn that Sherebiah was a man of understanding. What a description. He was a man of understanding. And that word understanding Well, it's translated from a Hebrew word, which could also be rendered intelligence, prudence, wisdom, and wise. He was a wise man. He was an intelligent man. He was a prudent man. And it seems to me that Sherebiah was a wise man who understood that the blessings of serving the Lord at the temple in Jerusalem was going to be worth all the difficulties that they would endure as they made their way from Babylon to Jerusalem. And as we consider his example, you know, it's my prayer that we would all walk in the same understanding, that we would all walk in the same wisdom, which leads us to believe that the blessings of actually serving our Savior is worth all the difficulties that we might endure as we actually accomplish the work. At the same time, it's also important for us to spend time seeking the Lord so that we can make sure that we remain on the path of righteousness that the Lord has placed before us. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Ezra chapter 8. We'll begin reading at verse 21. Here Ezra declares, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, 
that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road because we had spoken to the king saying, the hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. Now here in these verses we find Ezra, he's coming to terms with the fact that his faith in the Lord was about to be put to the test. For example, you know, Ezra was the one who assured the king of Persia that they didn't need any protection from the Persian soldiers. And the reason why is because, you know, he was so certain that the good hand of God would be upon them for the whole journey. And he also informed the king that the power and the wrath of God would be against those who would come against them. Now, listen, I have no doubt that this was an easy thing for him to say while he stood there in the king's palace. You know, standing there in the king's palace, he's just like, oh, no, we don't need any help. We got this, you know. But then he gets out to the river Ahava as they're about to leave Babylon. And he's starting to think, did I write a check with my mouth that my... Not so sure. Yeah, he's stressing out. He's about to head off into the wild unknown with six, 7,000 people traveling for over 1,000 miles, and he's not so sure anymore. Ezra came to terms with the fact that he's about to take on a task that is God really going to be with us the whole way? It was at that point in time when rather than going back to the king, what did he do? He went to the king of kings. He went to the king of kings. He, he, he realized that they needed to fast and they needed to pray so that the Lord might provide them with the divine direction and the powerful protection that he was so certain they would receive back in the king's palace. And we should notice there in verse 23 where Ezra declares, we fasted and entreated our God for this and he answered our prayer. Incredible. If you have the liberty to write in your Bible, you might highlight that or circle it. Put a little star in the, in the, in the side there. We, he, we fasted and entreated our God for this and he answered our prayer. The people of God humbled themselves by taking the time to seek the Lord through prayer and fasting. And in response to their humility, the Lord helped them. He helped them to see the right way so that they could arrive in Jerusalem safe and sound. As we consider Ezra's example here to stop, fast, and pray and seek the Lord for the right way, I can't help but to remember something that King Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 3. There he declares, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. I know it's easy to memorize these verses in the king's palace. But then when you go to work and, and your boss is coming down on you, 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 you get out in the world and ne- next thing you know, the enemy's attacking. You really believe these verses that you memorized? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways. He shall direct your paths. Don't be wise in your own eyes. 
Don't try to figure it out on your own. Fear the Lord and then depart from evil. Christian, listen, if you aren't sure about the right path that you ought to be taking, well, it's time to spend some time fasting and praying as we humbly seek the guidance of God. And so rather than leaning on our own understanding, let's walk in the fear of the Lord as we wait for him to direct our paths and praise the Lord. He does not mumble. If you're trying to figure out God's will, lean not on your own understanding. God doesn't come and speak in code and, and you got to get out the geometria, you know, ruler to, to figure out what he's saying. And, and that's how a lot of Christians treat the voice of God. It's just kind of like, oh, I don't really understand what he's saying here, but I think it might be this. And I, and I think I saw a license plate and I think, you know, this miraculous sign, I saw some clouds in the sky. It kind of looked like a puppy dog, you know, and is that God trying to tell me something? No, no, it's not. He doesn't mumble. He is very clear. But don't lean on your, on your own understanding. Just fear the Lord. And depart from evil and he will guide you. I, I encourage you to avoid the mistake that so many Christians make when they start praying for confirmation of some new direction. confirmation for some new direction. Why don't you just keep doing what God told you to do? And if he, if he has something new for you, he'll, he'll tell you about it. You don't have to pray for some confirmation of something new. You, you don't get in the middle of your journey to Jerusalem and go, God, did you really want me to go to Iraq? Let me pray about that. Why are you going to pray about that? God said, go to Jerusalem. Keep going to Jerusalem. Listen, I realize that there are times when it's tough to continue serving our Savior because sometimes it's just tough. These difficulties end up driving many, though, to pray for permission to find a path that's less painful. Where were we called to do that? Where are we called to pray for a less painful path because the one that God sent us on got too difficult? If this sounds like your struggle, then I encourage you to remember what King David wrote in the 23rd Psalm. There he declares, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Christian, listen, if we're allowing the Lord to actually be our good shepherd, then we don't need to worry when he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. If he's the one leading you through the valley of the shadow of death, then, it, then that is the path of righteousness, is it not? Well, it doesn't feel like righteousness. Yeah, but that's the path. 
And if you find yourself on this path of righteousness being led through the valley of the shadow of death, then you don't need to pray for permission to find another path that's less painful because that would be a path that would take you away from the leading of the Lord. Please trust me when I tell you that our good shepherd will not only lead us beside still waters at times, and we love those times, but there are times when he leads us into the valley of the shadow of death, and it's there where we must remain committed to his calling as we follow the good shepherd in that dark place. Next thing you know, you're being stalked by three women named Shirley, Goodness, and Mercy. not as bad as it sounds. Listen, there are times when he prepares a table for us, even surrounded by our enemies. And that's hard to hear, isn't it? Who wants to eat at a table where all of their enemies are seated? Who would even have an appetite? Well, I would, but, but I mean, that's my secret. I'm always hungry. But he prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And yet that's a path of righteousness. That being the case, we must remember that the narrow path of righteousness is oftentimes the most difficult road to go. And yet the Lord never called us to pray for permission for a less painful path. This is the, the road that the Lord uses to prepare us for the day when we will finally dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But this is the focus. I want to consider the way that Ezra prepare, prepared the priests and the Levites for their trip to the temple where they would start serving. And, and with that, let's pick up our study of Ezra chapter 8. You would look with me there beginning at verse 24. Here Ezra writes, And I separated 12 of the leaders of the priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their brethren with them, and weighed out to them the silver, the gold, and the articles, the offering for the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes and all Israel who were present had offered. I weighed into their hands 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 gold basins worth a thousand drachmas and two vessels of fine polished bronze, precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord. The articles are holy also. And the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord God of your fathers. Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leaders of the priests and the Levites and heads of the fathers' houses of Israel and Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites received the silver and the gold and the articles by weight to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river of Ava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the road. Now here in these verses, we learn about the way that Ezra divided up the articles of the silver and the gold, and there was even some polished bronze. And the reason for this decision was probably to safeguard the free will offering that they were bringing from, uh, actually bringing to Jerusalem. And just think about it here for a moment, that, that if, if all the articles of silver and gold and bronze were, were placed together uh, on the same camels or on the same carts, well, then it would, it would have been easier for the enemy to, to come along and, and you know, take the treasure from them. 
Now, now, thankfully, the hand of the Lord was upon them, so they didn't have anything to worry about at all. And, and he delivered them from every ambush along the road. But so it might have been just a you know, practical way of, of Ezra trying to break up the treasure you know, so that if one camel got stolen, that, that they wouldn't be you know, getting a great deal of gold or, or whatnot. But with all of this, I'd like to suggest another reason for why Ezra divided the articles of silver and gold and bronze. Simply put, uh, this was the best way to divide up the work of hauling this heavy load from Babylon to Jerusalem. You know, according to one calculation, Ezra may have been hauling as much as 25 tons of precious metals. He could have been carrying upwards of 25 tons of gold and silver and some bronze and you know, rather than trying to accomplish this massive endeavor by himself, rather than trying to move all this treasure to the temple all on his own, you know, Ezra decides that he's going to divide up the work, and he did this by delegating the responsibility to all of his high-level leaders, and then they shared the responsibility with those under their leadership. And in this way, all of the priests and all the Levites and the Nethanim, they all shared in the burden of hauling this massive amount of silver and gold and bronze. Now, as we consider all, all the ways that they, they you know, shared in this incredible amount of work, you know, I can't help but remember something that Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6. It's verse 2 where he declares, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You might not know this, but we've been called to bear one another's burdens. And as we bear one another's burdens, listen, we're able to accomplish incredible things for the Lord. So with this as the goal, let's just consider the story here of how the treasure was divided up so that, you know, small amounts of it could be carried by each person. And that's what it looks like to serve in our church. That's what it looks like to serve one another and to bear one another's burdens. Many hands make light work, you might say. Now, with all this as the goal, let's consider the way that all of this work ended up blessing the people of God there in Jerusalem. And so let's pick up our study of Ezra chapter 8, beginning at verse 32. Here Ezra writes, So we came to Jerusalem and stayed there three days. Now on the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the articles were weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the priest. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. With them were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Yeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui, uh, with the number and weight of everything. All the weight was written down at that time. The children of those who had been carried away captive, who had come from the captivity, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and 12 male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. And they delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps and the governors in the region beyond the river. So they gave support to the people and the house of God. Now here in the final verses of this chapter, we learned about the day when this group that was led by Ezra finally arrived there in Jerusalem. And after three days of settling in and, you know, getting over their camel lag, you know, it was uh, the fourth day then when the people, you know, uh, were ready to celebrate their arrival. And, you know, the people who were already living in Jerusalem gathered together with, the, with their new neighbors there at the temple. And, and together they celebrated. 
They worshiped the Lord and they celebrated this free will offering that the king of Persia had provided for them. And, and not only that, but Ezra also delivered the details of the decree that the king of Persia sent to the rulers of this region. And just by way of, of a reminder here, I'll, I'll point you back to Ezra chapter 7. It's in Ezra chapter 7, verse 21, where the king declares, I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven may require of you, let it be done diligently up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribed limit. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently be done for the house of God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Also, we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, Nethanim, or servants of this house of God. From this, we're reminded of the fact that the king of Persia uh, was commanding the rulers in that region to submit themselves to the God of heaven by supporting the children of Israel, as well as the ministry that they were accomplishing there at the temple. And so we see that, you know, uh, the Lord had moved in the heart of King Darius and, and had uh, actually King Artaxerxes, as you say, and, uh, and had actually encouraged him to encourage the rest of his leaders to support the ministry there in Jerusalem. As we consider the way that the Lord was blessing the children of Israel with support from every side, well, there's no doubt that the Lord was blessing the faith of Ezra as well as the obedience of those who decided to follow him. And in similar fashion, I do believe that the Lord also has a plan to bless every church where the people of God are offering themselves as a living sacrifice unto the Lord. I like the way that Paul put it in Hebrews chapter 13. It's beginning at verse 15 where Paul declares, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you sooner. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. From this, we see Paul here calling every Christian to continue gathering together in order to worship the Lord with the sacrifice of praise. And while I certainly encourage every Christian to, to sing praises at their own home, Paul is actually instructing us to join together as a church so that together we can offer the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, and, and in this that we would also share with one another, sharing, first of all, our lives together as we worship the Lord corporately. 
And not only that, but then he also calls us to submit to those who have been raised up into leadership positions so that together we can serve the good shepherd according to his calling and according to the hierarchy established in each church. And so, listen, regardless of whether you find yourself tonight refreshed by the still waters, or maybe you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, regardless of where you are, if the Lord is leading you, if he is your good shepherd, then he has you exactly where he wants you. And, and all of this is to make us complete in every good work so that we can do his will. All of this is so that he can work in us what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. And so regardless of where you are, whether you're in that valley of the shadow of, of death or, or whether you're seated at the table with your enemies or whether you're being refreshed by still waters, the best advice that I can give you tonight is trust a good shepherd. Don't lean on your own understanding, but follow Jesus Christ and he will lead us into the house of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word and for how